Please remain standing. Uh, flip with me in your Bibles to Galatians 5, 16 to 25. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hello, friends, and welcome. Uh, It's great to be with you again this morning. If you're new, my name is Brooks. I'm one of the leaders here at True North, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, We are a community committed to leading lives that point to Jesus, more specifically leading internal lives pointed by Jesus in order to then live external lives that point to Jesus. Now, first off, I just got to say that, man, doesn't spring feel good right now? What? We've been seeing real beauty on display. You know, people are getting outside. Uh, The other day, Amanda and I saw someone sunbathing on the grass just by the side of the road. It was still morning and the sky was still overcast and gray. But nonetheless, someone was taking in what UV rays she could on the lawn. And you gotta love Seattleites. Now, who here finds themselves just taken by the beauty of the cherry blossoms in bloom? Who here braved the crowds at UW to see them on the quad? You can raise your hand. Uh, who, here, who here was disappointed when you saw them? No one, right? They're gorgeous. It takes your breath away. The art and beauty of creation takes your breath away. Um, the other night, <clears throat> Amanda and I were out on a date, and we did something that we had not done in a really long time. We went to the ballet. Some of you are like, cool, I guess. Um, but it was great. You know, we, we have some friends who play in the orchestra there. Uh, they got us free tickets. That's one of the perks of all my years spent in music school. Um, and it was really lovely. Um, not only was the performance great, uh, but we also got to catch up with some old college friends uh, who now work at the Pacific Northwest Ballet. Um, anyway, I was catching up with one of my old college friends, and she told us that she had just taken her daughter to see the cherry blossoms on the quad. And we were like, oh, that sounds so sweet. What'd she think? To which my friend replied, she was extremely disappointed. And we were like, what? My friend was like, yeah, we went there. I had hyped up the cherry blossoms maybe too much. And when we got to the trees, my daughter was like, where are the cherries? Are there no cherries? I came for the cherries. 
and my friend had to explain, no, sweetie, they're, they're cherry blossoms. But no cherries? And what's even the point? A valid question if you're three years old and you just want to eat sweet, yummy things all the time. Like, I can picture her right now just leaving a Google review. Cherry blossoms at UW, one star. There aren't even any cherries. <laughs> she desired one thing, thought she was going to get it, but was then met by something else and subsequently disappointed. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Why there are no cherries on the cherry blossoms. I'm kidding, but only sort of. We will be talking about desire, but specifically misplaced and disordered desire. Uh, as some of you know, we've been going through our Sacred Bodies series, um, and last week we reached a turning point. And we had spent the first couple weeks establishing the value of our physical bodies as these created masterpieces that reflect the image of our Creator, God. We talked about the sacred nature of our bodies and how we should therefore love and care for them. How we should respect and honor them, both our own bodies as well as those of others. But then, last week we explored the opposite extreme. Unhealthy worship of or idolatry of the body. And we went on to talk about the sacred purpose of our bodies. The fact that they are temples dedicated to God. And for those who are in Christ, God literally dwells in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, our bodies are to be stewarded as the temples that they are. Our bodies are the places in which we meet with the living God. They're meeting places with the divine. And so the way we treat our bodies determines if they are conducive to relationship with God and worship of God, or hostile to relationship and worship of God. So today we're going to continue along the same vein to revisit desire, and along with that, self-control and addiction. Yay! Uh, so let us engage our bodies now by standing to pray. Go ahead and close your eyes and just take a few moments to, to take some slow, deep breaths to calm your body and to prepare your mind. Feel free even to, to open your palms just in a posture of receiving. Holy Spirit, we receive you now and we invite you to speak to us where we are and to speak directly to our hearts, Lord. We invite you to do the work of renewal and transformation today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. All right, so before we dive deep into things, uh, first a trip down memory lane. The year is 2001. Many of you were not born yet, but it was June and I had just finished my last day of middle school. We had, we had just had our eighth grade graduation ceremony the night before, to which Asian parents are like, why do we even celebrate this? Everyone graduates from middle school. Uh, so anyway, I had just finished my last day. I had just completed what teachers told me was a major milestone in my life. And so I wanted to celebrate. I think immediately after school, we, we, I hung out with friends. You know, obviously no one drives yet in eighth grade, so we just wandered around, and I hung out at one of our friends' houses for a while. And then I went home. And when I got home, no one was home. 
my dad was still at work. I think my mom was away on business. So I had the whole house to myself, no adult supervision. And I wanted to celebrate by doing whatever I wanted. The rebellious, budding teenager in me wanted to act out in some way, to, to let loose as much as an eighth grader in the suburbs could. I couldn't drink. There was no way to get around. We didn't have cable television. YouTube was not a thing. Uh, video games were, I always play video games. Uh, and so, since no one was home to see what I was doing, I hopped on the computer and I watched pornography. It wasn't the first time, but when I knew that no one was home, I felt that excitement well up in me because I knew I could indulge in whatever I wanted and in whatever I was usually not supposed to. I, I remember pulling up the first website and thinking that I could just watch a little and then I'd go do something else. And then 10 minutes became 30 minutes, an hour became two, and I could not stop. You know, I remember feeling this, this gnawing sense of, of not exactly guilt, but it felt like something inside me was just gnawing away at my senses. Like, like this slow desensitization to what is actually vile. And, and now thinking back, I, it felt like my soul was under attack. As if acid was like dripping on it, just wearing and corroding it away. And this is how I spent my last day of middle school, watching porn. The end of a major chapter of my life concluded with pornography, concluded with selfish indulgence, abuse, and objectification of others. I ended my middle school years by actively degrading my mind, heart, soul, and body by participating in and perpetuating a vile business that profits off of the degradation and abuse of others, because that's what pornography does. And it wasn't a one-time thing. You know, pornography started as a small indulgence, but be quickly became a daily habit, which means it's an addiction that lasted all the way through college. I could not control it, and self-control felt impossible. Now, I share this because I know many of you have similar experiences and stories. Maybe for you it was and continues to be pornography, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction, or perhaps it feels more, maybe it's something that feels more acceptable, like you're addicted to your career or your social media presence or your academic performance. You're addicted to achievement. Maybe... Just maybe you're addicted to video games or Twitch or, or Netflix. But addiction is real. And the struggle is real. Self-control is hard. Losing control is all too easy. You know, for someone struggling with an alcohol addiction, one sip is never just one sip. If it's pornography, it's usually never a one-time Many of us discovered just how hard it was to not check work-related email while on Sabbath or on vacation, which points to the reality that you are probably addicted to your career or to academia. We're workaholics and we cannot stop. Or maybe, or maybe we're at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe we're just addicted to leisure and slothfulness and we just cannot get off the couch. 
Today, we won't spend a lot of time talking about the results of addiction, but rather we'll get at the roots and the why. Paul writes here in his letter to the Galatians, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Two concepts to understand first, the flesh and desire. And this is point one, desire and the flesh. The Greek word Paul uses for flesh is sarkos. And he uses it a lot throughout the New Testament. It's translated here as flesh, but it actually carries multiple meanings. It means flesh, but it also means body, human nature, materiality, or or kindred, or a body of people. You know, last week we talked about the notion that the body is not a bad thing. God created the body, our bodies, and he created them for good. The problem is that they're infected by sin. The way we should understand flesh here in this passage then is not necessarily to mean body, but rather the sinful cravings felt in the body. In his book, Live No Lies, pastor and writer John Mark Comer points to Paul's use of the word flesh in Romans 7 to mean sinful passions and himself defines it in this context as our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sensuality, as in sex and food, but also to pleasure in general, as well as our instincts for survival, domination, and the need for control. Sinful passions. Now, desire. We all have desires, and in fact, God created us with desire. But then James goes on to write this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, is desire good or bad? Well, is the body good or bad? The body is good, but it's corrupted by sin. In the same way, desire is good, but it's corrupted by sin. This is the reality in which we live. This is why James writes that our desires, which have been corrupted, tempt us, lead us to sin, and ultimately to death if we are not careful. So how does sin corrupt? Specifically, how does it corrupt our desire? Let's take a step back and reconsider sin. What is sin? To answer that, let's ask, how was Eve tempted? You don't have to flip there, but but look at what the serpent says to Eve in Genesis 3. He starts by saying, did God actually say you can't eat that fruit? So first, he gets Eve to second-guess herself and what God says. And then he's like, well, God, she's, well, she's like, God said not to eat this fruit or else we'll die, to which the serpent replies, you will not surely die This is a flat-out lie, but he takes it a step further and says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the text goes on. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And we know what happens next. 
So first, the serpent gets Eve to second-guess God. He lies about the results of disobedience. And then he suggests that God is holding out on her. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll become, you'll become wise like God is. And this takes us to point two, desire and fear. Sin gets at our desires and our fears. Do you see how the serpent targeted her desires? Her appetite, she, she saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and her desire for wisdom and subsequently power as well as her fear, specifically her fear that God was holding out on her, that God was preventing her from being happy. So the serpent gets Eve to mistrust God. St. Ignatius defines sin as the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. We think God is holding out on me. He must be some killjoy out to keep me from living my best life. When in fact, the opposite is true. St. Augustine sums up sin with the phrase, homo incurvitus in se, humanity curved in on itself, living a life inwardly, solely for the self, self-gratification, rather than outwards towards God and others. And so what we see in the serpent's temptation of Eve is the notion that sin targets our fears and desires. Sin plays and preys on our desires and our fears. We are made with good desires, but sin takes those desires and distorts and disorders them. Sin takes our desire for sex and distorts it. It makes it the number one priority, the number one God. Sin takes our desire for identity and makes it our God. Sin takes our desire for pleasure and makes it our God. Pastor and writer Tim Keller puts it this way. Sin is building your life's meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Sin is building your life's meaning on anything, even a good thing, more than on God. Our desire for identity is part of what it means to be human. But sin takes that desire and places it above God, ironically, the one who gives us our true identity. And this is why we strive so hard to make something of ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, or to attain a certain status for ourselves, all the while forsaking and leaving God, the source of our true identity. As a result, we lose sight of who we are in God. And we kill ourselves trying to fashion a false identity through our careers, through our achievements, or our, our possessions, or even our sexuality. You know, our, our desire to try our best in our careers or in school is a good desire. But sin takes that desire and puts it above God. Our desire for relationship is a good desire, but sin takes that desire and puts it above God. And when that happens, we actually become quite self-centered people in our relationships. We smother people or we resent people when they don't reciprocate the way we want them to. And we just cannot love as Jesus calls us to love. On the other side of the same coin, sin plays up our fears. Sin tells us that our identity is not found in God, but that it's found in the things of this world and that you have to find it and or fabricate it. 
in our career, achievements, status, or sexuality, and that we're nothing unless we build this false identity. This is a lie. Sin wants us to be afraid and insecure. It tells us that God is, in fact, holding out on us, that he doesn't care about us or our happiness, and so we better find it ourselves somewhere else. Sin, or rather, the devil, tells us the same thing he told Eve. Paul writes in verse 19, Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If you think about it, at the heart of each one of these things, lies, desires, and fears distorted. Let's consider the things that we indulge in and the root desires and fears that sin preys on. Why don't we start with pornography since we're talking about that? What are the root desires and fears beneath our urges to indulge in pornography? Perhaps, perhaps it starts with peer pressure. For me, it started when when my friend showed me websites in seventh grade and, and said that it was just a natural part of being a guy. So there's the desire to fit in and to maybe be a man. And on the flip side, there's the fear of being viewed as an outsider or a goody-good prude or someone who's not a real man. Like, you're not a real man unless you indulge your animal urges and objectify women. Perhaps it's a desire to sample sexual pleasure. Sexual desire is a good desire. It's given to us by God. But it's not God. Sin elevates sex to God status, which is not surprising in this day and age. Culture tells us that sexual pleasure is God. Sexual identity is God. You are your sexuality. So therefore, I should indulge in pornography and casual sex. Culture tells me that this is the highest pleasure and that I should do what I feel. Now, on the flip side, if I don't indulge, I must be missing out on this sexual liberation, it's actually slavery, that everyone around me seems to be experiencing. Is God holding out on me by making me wait until I enter the covenantal relationship of marriage? And again, maybe that makes me less of a man. Infidelity in marriage gets at our desire for something new, fresh, and exciting. And perhaps assuages the fears that our current marriage is on the rocks or in shambles. Or the fear that we're losing our attractiveness. It gets at our insecurities. Let's consider the notion of escapism through media, video games, careerism, or alcohol and drugs. First, the desires. Maybe it's a desire for identity. When I'm online, I can be somebody. I can rack up the likes and follows, or I can work away at the high score. I can buy cool game skins and post just the right pictures, curate that perfect life, and I can be someone else. When I have that drink, I can be loose, easygoing, and likable. Not that unattractive, unconfident person that people see all the time. Then the fears. When I'm on a Netflix binge or just in front of the screen for hours on end, 
I don't have to face reality. I don't have to face the world out there. I don't have to face my coworkers. I don't have to face the brokenness in my own home. I don't have to muster up the energy to interact with people, to try to love people just to have them not love me back. I don't have to risk rejection, sadness, and pain. When I have that drink, I don't have to rely on just being myself. With my media addiction, or alcohol addiction, or sexual addiction, or you fill in the blank, I can drown out everything. I don't have to deal with reality. The reality out there, or the reality in here. Never mind that my soul might be disintegrating in the process. Never mind that this is living a gigantic lie that's deluding my mind, twisting my heart, and wreaking havoc on my soul, completely sabotaging my relationship with God. Never mind that these addictions don't hurt just me. Pornography does not only hurt the user. Let me read you some statements given by former sex workers in the pornography industry, and I'll warn you, this is a bit graphic. I got the crap kicked out of me. Most of the girls start crying because they're hurting so much. I couldn't breathe. I was being hit and choked. I was really upset and they didn't stop. They kept filming. It was torture for seven years. I was miserable. I was lonely. I eventually turned to drugs and alcohol and attempted suicide. I knew I wanted out, but I didn't know how to get out. I wanted to please them, so I did it. He stepped on my head. I freaked out and started crying. They stopped filming and sent me home with reduced pay. This is pornography. Alcohol does not only hurt the user. Just ask the victim of alcohol-fueled domestic abuse at home or the mother whose child was killed by a drunk driver. And if you think, oh, it's not me, it hasn't gotten that extreme, think of the people you have to lie to on a daily basis. Social media addiction does not only hurt the addicted. In the same way that pornography does, social media fuels comparison, envy, jealousy, delusion, dissatisfaction, and the objectification of others. We like people for their looks and the images they post, for the things they have, or for the life they seem to have. And have you ever hung out with someone who's just addicted to their phone? Like, they're not present with you even if they say they are. Addiction to career in academia does not only hurt the addicted. The people we love suffer the most. Just ask the kid whose mom or dad is never home because they're always at work. This all sounds terrible because it is. It's what sin does. But even when we know it's terrible, we can't stop. We just can't seem to stop. And Paul gets it. He writes in Romans 7, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It feels like our desires are just too strong. Self-control, ultimately impossible. And our culture says, why even try? Addiction, inevitable. Slavery, reality. 
But to this, Comer writes, our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. Wait, what? Our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. We're only bred to think that way because we live in an age in which the message is predominantly and unequivocally, do what feels good. Listen to your natural urges. And so we're busy satisfying these shallow, animalistic desires corrupted by sin We're so busy trying to satisfy these urges that we don't even know what we really desire. Comer goes on. Our deepest desires, usually to become people of goodness and love, are often sabotaged by the stronger surface-level desires of the flesh. And so we're entrenched in our unhealthy habits and addictions that we don't even have space to consider our deepest desires given to us by God. What if beneath our desire to escape from reality was really our deeper desire to be deeply loved? What if beneath it all was our desire to know and have joy and peace rather than crumbling in the midst of the pressures and burdens of real life? What if beneath our desire for pleasure was actually a deeper desire to be fully known, accepted, and loved. And what if, in our efforts to meet these surface-level desires, we're actually growing further and further and further away from our deepest, truest desires? We know by experience how addiction works. The first hit feels good, usually immediately, It satisfies that shallow craving for pleasure right away, and it kickstarts habit. Cue, routine, reward. This is how habits are formed. But then what? We'll always need to increase the dosage. And the more we increase, the more hooked and enslaved we become. The more enslaved we become, the further we get from meeting our deepest, truest desires the further we get from Jesus and flourishing life, and the closer we get to death. We settle for less and indulge our flesh. But in doing so, we distance ourselves further and further from true satisfaction and fulfillment. It's literally self-delusion and self-sabotage. Paul writes, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. We ruin ourselves. And for what? We ruin ourselves for the sake of things that aren't even our deepest, truest desires. We chase momentary happiness, relief, and pleasure. But what we really desire is lasting love, joy, and peace. Our surface-level desires and our indulgence of them keeps us from ever knowing and fulfilling our deepest desires. And we spiral further and further into numbness and spiritual death. And this takes us to point three. Our deepest desires. Can we ever find and fulfill them? Back to Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, they had it all. 
They had food and nourishment provided for them. They had companionship and relationship. They were naked and unashamed, which meant they fully knew each other and felt no guilt, no self-consciousness or insecurity. Can you imagine that? Like, like you'd never have that dream where you show up to work or school with no clothes on. You'd never compare yourself with a beautiful person on Insta or TikTok. You'd never worry about not getting likes on your selfies or people looking at you weird. Lastly, God dwelt among them and spoke directly to them. And so they were in perfect, loving, life-giving and sustaining relationship with God and with each other. And since there was no death and disease, no predators out to eat them, no stress and anxiety or feelings of insecurity and questions of self-worth, there was peace and joy. Love, peace, and joy. These are at the heart of human desire. To be fully known, accepted, and loved, and to live in peace and joy. This is what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the beginning. Because these are the desires that God gave us. Now, if God, who's holy, all-knowing, Almighty and loving gave us these desires, would he not then somehow fulfill them? Like, wouldn't it just be incredibly cruel to, to hardwire us for love, joy, and peace, for relationship and intimacy, and then not deliver through some means? C.S. Lewis writes this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Are addictions, do they ever deliver in the long run? Do they ever deliver true love, joy, and peace? Or do they actually do the opposite? Do they actually just distance us even further from true love, joy, and peace, all the while enslaving us? What if our deepest desires, the desires that God gave us, are actually only satisfied and fulfilled in God? What if... Paul states clearly, walk by the Spirit. And then he goes on. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Love, joy, Peace, not to mention patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice all the things that existed in the Garden of Eden before the fall are possible. These are byproducts of living by the Spirit, of living and walking in step with God. You can smile. This is good news. Man. 
Our desire for love, where have we been looking for it? And have we found it? Don't you think the best place to look, or rather the best person to turn to, would be the source and origin of love? Don't you think the best place to look for love would be in the arms of our Heavenly Father, who proved his love to us by sending Jesus to live and die for our sake? Our desire for joy, where have we been looking for it? And have we found it? Or are we deluding ourselves with temporary bursts of pleasure and hits of happiness? Would it be unreasonable to suggest that our greatest joy is found in relationship with the one who sees us, knows us better than anyone else in the world, all of our beauties and faults, all of our good moments and forgettable moments, all of our brokenness and ugliness, and yet loves us just the same? Our desire for peace, where have we been looking for it? Why not, why not look for peace in the almighty God of the universe? The God who created the heavens and the earth and the one who's Lord over all of it. Why not look for peace in the one who promises to be with us through the pain, sadness, and sorrow that we will face in this life? I could go on down the rest of the list. Our desire for sex. What if sex isn't the God we make it out to be? What if sexual pleasure isn't actually the pinnacle of human experience? What if the sexuality we feel isn't actually our true identity? What if God's idea of sex as being a gift, and believe me, it is a gift, reserved for married couples, for two people bound in a self-giving covenant rather than a self-serving one-night stand, was actually the best way to view and have sex. It is. God created us with these desires, so don't you think he'd be the one to fulfill them? Friends, we can only truly find and enjoy these things in God. I love that Paul ends this list with self-control. Because when we discover that that God is in fact the source of all that is good and all that we need, that he is the source of love, satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose, we'll find that we can exercise self-control. We won't need to indulge our fleshly desires because we'll find that he satisfies our deeper, truer desires. We won't need to indulge in pornography or casual sex to fulfill the emptiness we feel. We won't need to rely on our careers, achievements, looks, or popularity for identity. We won't need to constantly search for affirmation and approval through social media. We won't need to escape through the metaverse or through alcohol or drug consumption. As we find all that we need in Christ alone, our addictions lose their power. And we begin to taste freedom. And so let's conclude where we began. When we seek to fulfill our deepest desires in Christ, we will not be disappointed. We won't come seeking cherry blossoms only to be disappointed by false advertising. Paul writes at the start of today's text, 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then at the end, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. That's strong language. Crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. Immediately following this teaching, we'll have a time to reflect and to meditate in solitude. And then we'll have our our post-sermon discussion. Now, this will require vulnerability and honesty. And maybe you're not there yet, and that's okay. But this is a safe place. So if you feel comfortable, step one to crucifying the flesh is confession. Confess your addiction to someone. Confess your struggle with self-control. Maybe your addiction is control. Confess your struggle with self-control. And confess the ways in which you choose to gratify the flesh. Confess sin. Sin and addiction begin to lose their power when you name it and confess it and bring it into the light of Christ and the light of community. When you confess, the Spirit works to convict you, but also to comfort and strengthen you and spur you on in repentance. When you confess, community surrounds you to encourage you and to keep you accountable. And I believe that we can do that here. So go to Jesus in prayer and confess. Confess, repent, meaning take active steps away from sin. And receive not condemnation and judgment, but mercy, forgiveness, and grace. That is a promise. Go to someone you trust and to your community if you're ready. Confess and invite others to walk alongside you to support you. Step two to crucifying the flesh. Take up fasting. If you don't have any health complications, take up fasting. Go a day or maybe a shorter period at first without food. It sounds extreme and it definitely feels hard at first, but it's a step towards reclaiming our bodies and a step towards true freedom. It's freedom because as we practice fasting, we decide what our body takes in, not our flesh. I struggle with gluttony. I can easily overeat and overindulge. And so I fast once a week. For me, it's Wednesday. And when I fast, I practice saying no to the flesh. And over time, as this becomes habitual, the flesh loses its grip. And the spirit enters in and gives strength. Step three, go to Jesus on a regular basis. Something that I like to do is reframe my temptations when I'm tempted or enticed by my flesh, instead of focusing on it as a temptation that's about to make me stumble, I view it as an opportunity to go back to God. If a sinful urge comes up, that's a pathway to prayer. 
And so not only do I cultivate a habit of praying constantly, I cultivate a habit of relying on and finding victory in Jesus. Go to Jesus through the word. Remind yourselves of his promises. Remind yourselves of your true identity. Remind yourselves of the love and grace that are there waiting for you. Friends, in Christ, we can exercise self-control. It won't be a perfect path, but we can exercise self-control. In Christ, we can be free from addiction. He is the healer, and he delivers on his promises. Go to him and find healing and grace. Come to him and be loved. In Christ, we can have love, joy, and peace. In him, we can find all that we need. And when we realize this, sin loses its grip on us. Addiction loses its grip on us. Guilt and shame lose their grip on us because we meet only mercy and grace in Jesus. So confess. Repent, be healed, and be filled. Let us stand and pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your grace. We thank you that you've defeated our sin and that you've defeated death and that in you we do in fine in fact, find all that we need. Jesus, help us to see that your invitation to mercy and grace are always open. And we pray that your spirit would spur us on to receive your invitation, to receive you, Lord. Lead us to confession and repentance, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.